It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Beckett is over. I'm suddenly very intelligent. I think it comes from making love to that French girl last night. It happened in Canterbury, England, eight centuries ago. A story as ageless as time itself. The immortal story of a man called Beckett, who earned a king's most trusted friendship. Business, my lord. Who shared his most intimate secrets. I must say, I adore my French possessions. They're certainly worth recapturing. Until Beckett the man was made a bishop and his king lost him to God. Oh, Peter O'Toole. (laughs) Oh, my God, I love that so much. The The first half of this movie is essentially lethal weapon. Right. It's like like this buddy, buddy banter that I like a lot. (laughs) There's a lot of buddy banter for sure. So much buddy banter in the in the castle and at Canterbury. It surprised me. Yeah, it's well, it definitely is an interesting portrayal of our two primary uh, characters of this film. We have Thomas Beckett as the uh, he's really kind of just the best buddy hanging out with King Henry II all the time. Uh, Of course, then right at the beginning of the film, Henry appoints him Lord Chancellor and to make him kind of a confidant. And so suddenly he's a friend who is like kind of shifted into a position of prominence uh, in his court. And, and that begins the journey between them. But certainly, like, we're seeing a lot. I mean, Beckett definitely is portrayed as just as much a carouser as the king, but at the same time, he also is portrayed as the one who is the one who kind of like it's almost like the uh, the Eddie Mannix, not the accountant Eddie Mannix, but the the one who's figuring out how to get these people out of trouble and and kind of cleaning up all the messes after they make them, you know, and like 
um helping out like when the king wants to bring this this uh this pauper girl to the palace to be a plaything. Beckett kind of sorts it all out and gives the father some money and says, don't worry, she won't be coming and stuff like that. Like you get this sense that he's that, that guy who does everything he can to kind of keep the King happy is a genuine friend to him, but also he's the one who can kind of see the forest for the trees and, and does what he can to kind of like take care of things without even realize that the King is much more, um, aware than he realizes, I think. Yeah, aware, but you know, I think you get to something here because the the relationship, the genuineness of that relationship, but between the two, you know, talking about Thomas Beckett, like he is the genuine article. He's a genuine and loyal friend, but his loyalty, it turns out, trumps a lot of things, and Henry thinks that that loyalty is. Um, you know, it's what he's seeing is the loyalty in his friendship. And and he's surprised when he realizes that it turns out Beckett is actually more loyal to something other than that friendship, but he's loyal to to God. And when he's put in a position to shepherd the church, that that's what causes the conflict. And that's the surprise to O'Toole. And that rift that comes in their relationship, I think that makes it funny and hard for them to relate to one another and and i i really really enjoy it as much as i uh i i feel like they they do a, a sound job of lampooning the ridiculousness of the of the crown the way henry talks to to the the people in his uh service the political machinations the rift about the murder and and how you know one of the the priests is murdered by one of the lords like all of that is is ridiculous and shouldn't exist you know it makes me frustrated and sigh a lot what peter o'toole and richard burton are able to do with that material i think is really great I, i think there's a lot to that and just you know the exploration of uh friendship and i i think in the scope of your uh, kind of the way you were depicting Beckett and his loyalty to God and everything, what's interesting about Beckett is just watching him transform from somebody who is pretty much apathetic about everything. As he says, you know, he has no honor to self. He's just, you know, just kind of selfish. And so, but it is quite a turn once he is given that position where he suddenly has to look inward and kind of figure out that there might be something more than him. It's pretty interesting. For sure. Before we dig in too much, though, I just wanted to just say, you know, so we're kicking off a new series with this particular film. We are, of course, talking about um, the BAFTA's nominees for the 1965 uh, Best Film from Any Source. We've shifted from the Oscars, which we talked about in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, Now we're jumping over across the ocean to the BAFTA's. The BAFTA's started actually in the 40s, the same year. Uh, Best Years of Our Lives uh, came out. In fact, that was their first winner for Best Film from Any Source. The Best Film from Any Source, I was like, it's such a weird thing. What is this? It's uh, now just called the Best uh, BAFTA Award for Best Film. It's essentially their best picture that's specific, can be from anywhere. They they have uh, another category that's the award for best British film. And then they also, since the mid-80s, have one that's um, for best film not in the English language. But this was really kind of one where it was a broad thing. And it's interesting when you look at it over the course of the years, like this particular year, the four nominees were... Uh, Beckett, Dr. Strangelove, The Pumpkin Eater, and The Train. But then if you look at the BAFTA Awards for Best British Film, it's almost all of those still. And so it's like, it's funny that they even bother splitting it the way that they did, because uh, the Best British Film was still Beckett, Dr. Strangelove, The Pumpkin Eater, and then the other one was King and Country. And so it's it's odd that they still continue this, but I guess it's just a way to kind of focus specifically on just best British films. And, you know, I think there's probably some people uh, who wish that the Oscars had something that was best American film. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't think we necessarily need that. I think we're fine as is. <laughs> yeah, I think we're probably fine. 
That was what we were we were talking about Killers of the Flower Moon on on the film board that uh, just came out a couple of weeks ago, and it was the two hundred million dollars, the largest film ever produced in Oklahoma. <laughs> it gets me thinking of that. Maybe we need by state accolades at this point. Best Arizona movie. <laughs> That's really funny. But the question is, does it have to be shot there, or does it have to take place there, or both? That's oh. the, the rub. Because you look at yeah. New Mexico, like with tax incentives. A lot of films are shot there, but few of them actually take, take place, place there. there. No, I think they actually need to be shot and take place there. That's the important <laughs> part. All right. Well, we've solved that. Yes. All right. So, so Beckett. Beckett. Yes. Originally based on the play by Jean Ennui, uh, the French playwright. And um, I, I was surprised. I did not know that. Uh, and I do know a little bit of something about Jean Ennui. I was actually, it's one of the first college plays I did was Ring Round the Moon, which was an adaptation of Ennui's, an original Ennui play, an English adaptation of it by Christopher Fry. And there is a lot of comedy in, in it. And I, I played twins and some of the, the banter, it just feels right at home in the way this was adapted. Uh, it just feels very familiar to me that feels like there's an Ennui stamp. I'm not an Ennui scholar, but this felt much funnier than I expected it to be, but now feels totally natural given its pedigree. What did you, what did you think of the writing? And that's certainly interesting. Like, I know nothing about Jean Ennui. I don't know, just looking at the the plays he's written, uh, a French, French, French playwright, we should say, and this was originally a French play before getting uh, translated. It piques my curiosity to look at some of these things. Like, I feel like I've heard of some of the plays like Antigone and the Waltz of the Toreadors, I think are the two that um, I recognize the names, maybe Antigone, just because that's just like a Greek thing that I've heard from other things. So I honestly don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I don't know, I guess I don't know enough about Jean Ennui and the, even kind of the um, kind of the, the scope of, um, all of this, but Edward Arnold adapted the play, and uh, also somebody who I know very little of. So it's interesting to kind of look at these two and see the sorts of things that they do. I, I guess Edward Arnold I know from like Panic in the Streets. Oh, he also adapted The Young Lions, which um, I actually liked quite a bit. Uh, the Boston Strangler. Okay, so uh, I know more of his work. The Boston Strangler, the '68 version, is a fantastic film. That may be it, though. So uh, interesting pedigree behind the writing of this. So, and to your point, I think that is one of the interesting things is kind of depicting the British royalty in different periods of time and looking back at this particular point where we're looking at King Henry II. And I can't remember the year that it said at the beginning. It was like, when was it like 1100 or something like that? Anyway, I, it's my expectation walking into a film of, of royalty is often a little more stodgy stuffiness. And so seeing Peter O'Toole as essentially like such a, like watching him really reminded me this on this pass of our, the first King in the first season of game of Thrones. And I'm forgetting what his name is, but the one who gets, you know, um, gored by a boar on their boar hunt or whatever like he's just the always drinking sleeping with anybody uh disregarding his family he hates he i mean this king really dislikes his entire family the way that it's depicted in this source and it really boils down to this friendship that he has with beckett that is like the one thing that kind of keeps him together and it is a really interesting uh portrayal and just but just like there's so much comedy and levity but I think it was really kind of just that the source of that friendship that that he had with Beckett. Yeah, for sure. That was Robert Baratheon. He was the one who was first married to Circe. Is that who you're thinking of? Yes, 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 exactly. Yes, and I, I think that's a I think that's an apt comparison. I think this is this movie feels so much like a behind the scenes <laughs> of uh, making like <laughs> BTS royals uh, that that I I love. I also love in their relationship the fact that so like it. 
it walks the line between being just a really vulnerable, deep friendship between men to being a little bit homoerotic, like like they really like each other, which, you know, I think it's an interesting look for me to look at these guys, particularly in the context in which they are living, the time in which they are living, and the, the ultimate inciting incident of their falling out that he loves him so much, he puts their friendship at the mercy of their roles and does it with intention and misguided expectation, but with intention. Um, and, and I think that that makes it all the more interesting to me that they've, that they have such an attraction to each other and a lifelong friendship that, that they ultimately destroy for duty. I, and that's, I think the, the thing, like the, the way that, it depicts this relationship that is there is so much genuine love and affection in this friendship, particularly from O'Toole's side, from King Henry's side. And it's definitely there from Burton's side, but Burton, as Beckett, is the one who sees the role as more important than uh, the friendship, whereas Henry can't get past the idea that the role could perhaps end up becoming more important than the friendship. And he, you know, he goes through like he has several conversations with different people, most notably like his wife, when she says something derogatory about Beckett and he lays into her and he's like, don't you dare do that. I I may hate him, but it's because I love him so much that I hate him. Like it's this it's this interesting like love hate that grows in him because he cares about this person so much but now that this person has like become his his enemy it it's like it's watching his struggle over that last part of the film trying to figure out how to deal with that and it's it was really just quite uh quite a strong and big o'toole performance just kind of watching him grapple because there's a lot of grappling he has. Also, like that great scene of, between the two of them on the beach when he talks to him before he goes back to, um, before Beckett go, leaves Paris and uh, goes back over to England. Like, just, I mean, it's it's just quite, it, quite a strong struggle. It really is. And I, I think we have the, this is what's interesting that I've been trying to kind of pull apart about, particularly O'Toole, but it both of them are dealing with this to a different degree. That O'Toole's, you know, his reign comes at the benefit of genealogy, right? Like he's the king because he's in that tree, that particular family tree at just the right place. And so he has always dealt with exactly the same thing we see him uh, dealing with with his own son, Henry III, right? When he he's just so mean, so mean to his son. And uh, but but that you have to see is this sort of transference about how much he kind of hates himself, that he feels trapped, that he's like a caged animal in royalty. And the only way out was this friend of his. And yet what we get in Beckett is he was gifted by I would he would probably say divine right. Like he was gifted this this position of importance, not inherited and thereby sees it with greater loyalty to the role, right? Because he never had it, now he has it and he takes it more seriously than we ever see O'Toole taking his, because he's always had it, right? It's that sort of inverse kind of demand curve that they deal with, demand loyalty curve that they're both dealing with. And I think that's one of the fantastic like elements of this play that O'Toole and Burton bring out for me exceptionally the complexities of their friendship because of their relationship to each of their roles does that hit home with you at all am i just rambling now i think that's exactly it i think burton you you see him as beckett already stepping up once he's appointed lord chancellor to kind of do what the king asks but that's a role of kind of in the royal uh, vain as far as like that's one of the people that works directly for the king and so he's totally like taking on that role as well you know he's a person who is very um loyal to his uh to his king his friend but also to the role itself and and i don't think henry recognizes that when beckett becomes lord chancellor that he is incredibly loyal to the role and uh, 
had he recognized that, he might have not granted him the Archbishop of Canterbury role, which, um, you know, it's it, he kind of does on a whim, right? They're, they're already constantly fighting with the Archbishop about this whole taxation thing. Henry wants more taxes and uh, because he's going into France to invade and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and and the archbishop just won't budge on all of this and it's when they're in france as they've kind of taken one of these towns um that uh he finds out that the arch- archbishop is dead and that's when he's just like hey you be archbishop and it's like it's like this game to him and it's like he does he still doesn't quite recognize the way that beckett takes on these roles and it's such an interesting thing that um, really kind of shifts the story from that point forward once you have Beckett, uh, you know, who we have heard when he's talking to that, um, the woman who is his uh, his uh, mistress, I guess. She's one of these people that they had claimed on some conquest, brought back to the palace to live with her, and, and this was Gwendolyn, who was kind of his lover. But you can see how when he's talking to her and she's you know, kind of they're having this conversation, he admits to her that he has, like, there is nothing in there. He doesn't have that kind of that sense of who he is yet. And I think it's these roles that are kind of shifting that for him. And once he realizes that he's the archbishop and he has that moment where he prays to God about it and stuff, that it clicks with him and he becomes not just the archbishop but a very regimented archbishop who is going to absolutely follow the rules now and it's it just wasn't i don't think it was something either of them would have expected at the time that henry granted the role upon him yeah but it's interesting because like we all that we see of becket is that Every job he has been given by the king, he does with the same degree of loyalty. And we see that transformation because he gives him that that sort of chancellorship and makes him put on the the first fancy ring that he gets. And he immediately takes on the mantle of that and stands up to other authorities on behalf of the king. Like, there is no reason that the fact that it's a surprise to O'Toole, or I should say to Henry, that Beckett has taken this level of loyalty to the role does not mean it's a surprise to us as the audience that Beckett has found his way to loyalty to that role. And I think that's a that's an interesting bit of sort of relationship mystery that unfolds in the movie, because there was no reason for us to doubt that he would <laughs> that that Beckett wouldn't take on the mantle of Archbishop with the same degree of ferocity and steadfastness that he's done everything else the king has asked him to do. Whether it's, you know, protecting him from the the father of the farm girl in the beginning to, you know, standing up to raise wages and armies from the church through taxation, etc. in the middle of the film. Yeah, he's a very interesting and conflicted character. I mean, he talks about how he really kind of has no sense of honor to anything, but you can see that he definitely has a sense of honor to the king for sure. At the same time, he also recognizes the king is impulsive and makes a lot of you know decisions that you could argue are certainly crass, like that whole thing with the 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 little when they're out on the hunt and the, it starts pouring rain and they take refuge in that kind of the the little hut of those paupers, and the king is acting kingly and demanding that this little this old father who you know is he constantly is mocking for his ugliness and everything. Again, we haven't even talked about like the Normans versus the Saxons, like that whole part of the story. That's definitely an element here at play and kind of the the bifurcation of the way that people view each other. We don't have different, um, you know, it's not like skin color or anything that they're seeing, but it's definitely like a difference in the way that they approach each other. And so the the king and the noblemen are all Normans, and all of these poor people and everything are Saxons. And so he's really looking down on them even more. And then there's this young girl there who's you know just a young I don't know she the way that they described her she's just a young kid pretty much. And the king wants to take her to the palace and to have her be like a plaything. And he's like she's going to be given such a better life. Why wouldn't she want that? And like he can't see past that. And pretty much when Beckett says that he wants her, and then later as they leave, Beckett says, don't worry uh, to the father, don't worry, we're never going to actually come and take her. The king 
knows that Beckett will act that way and actually has the girl brought back to the palace. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, there is this element of some sort of uh, recognition of, it's not even like honor, but just of like, I don't know if it's like a self-discipline, but it certainly is just kind of a, a sense of humanity that Beckett carries a little more. And I think that's the thing that becomes the thing that he really latches onto once he becomes an archbishop. Like we see elements in him as a character that sure, they're carousing, they're drinking, they're partying all the time. But when a, when approached in situations of right and wrong, Beckett certainly is the one who can see the right and chooses that path more than the king does. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I, I think some of that is we get that that transformation through the eyes of Brother John. That scene when Beckett sits down or kneels in front of the cross thinking that he's alone, which he shouldn't. He should have waited for the door to latch. He didn't wait for the door to latch. Of course, he was being spied on. He knows the guy's there. No, I thought he said he sends him out. He says, go do this thing. And then he walked around and kneeled. And that's why when he comes around and they see each other, he says, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. Because Brother John is listening to this confession of how inept Beckett feels about taking on the mantle and yet how he realizes it's his job to do it and and his his weight to to bear. I really like that Brother John is here in that role because he's one of the characters or representing the characters that didn't believe Beckett was the authentic, you know, heir to the to the archbishopship. Uh, and yet this solemn bit of testimony overheard in private prayer is the thing that changes his mind and ends up becoming a faithful servant of Beckett. And ultimately... Yeah, right through to the end. Through yeah. to the bitter end, as he is... You, you want to say he catches a bullet. He catches a sword for the archbishop. <laughs> uh, but everybody needs their hide-a-body friend. That's all I'm saying. Like, you, you catch a sword friend. And that's what Brother John is. What'd you think of of David Weston and and Brother John's kind of role in the latter half of the film? I think that, in some sense, becomes a little bit our audience surrogate character. Like we actually, because uh, we're kind of questioning too, like all of this stuff going on with him, and through uh, Brother John's eyes, as he hears that kind of that confession, that plea to God from the mouth of Beckett, we're also understanding this is a very conflicted character, somebody who doesn't feel that he is in the in the right place to be taking on this role, yet he is going to and will do what he needs to to uh, be worthy of it. And we also, you could say, like we, just like Brother John, we also turn that corner and now side with Beckett and believe that this is a person who can make the strong choices that need to be made. And it's, it becomes like watching that transformation in Beckett's character through the eyes of, I think brother John, I think really helps allow for that to, to be something that uh, we feel the weight of more. It is that transformation that, that sort of transformational point in the film that King Henry's, emotions become almost lampooned, right? He's so off the, like every choice that he makes is more and more ridiculous about the the sort of political machinations, the, you know, chasing him out of England and then chasing him back, uh, you know, across France. You know, we get, we do get to go to France and see John Gilgood as King Louis. And uh, he's a <laughs> player. He is a player and uh you know, we get to see that, you know, how these countries are sort of, you know, machining politics against one another. I, I, I love that piece of it. Not just the countries, but he also goes to the Vatican and right. has a meeting with uh, the Pope. And, you know, we're getting this behind the scenes conversation between the Pope and his uh, right hand person that also reveals that it's not just the matters of the church that they are paying attention to, but it's very much their own relation with all of the politicking going on at this particular point in time. And how are we going to be getting along with England and these other countries if we allow this uh, this person to make these choices? And 
And that's interesting because, you know, this, this is very much a story, as much as it is a story about friends and friendship between, uh, you know, Henry and Thomas, it also is a story of the battle between church and state. And that's really what fuels the whole first part of the film is because Henry needs money in his coffers to kind of continue his war. And he's trying to raise taxes on all the people, but he also wants to tax the church and the church doesn't want to pay. And it's this whole, you know, we've already created this separation between church and state, but at the same time, they also need to work together. And then that's what fuels the fire when Beckett becomes arch archbishop, because one of the priests is accused of this crime and ends up getting killed by one I, I don't know is it one of the barons or one a, of the lords or one of the the lords and that's the whole thing like beckett doesn't side with henry he sides with uh, the church and ends up excommunicating this lord i like that they the way they portray that also because they're not portraying it like the priest was in the right they're pretty much saying you know what the pre cuz he was accused of you know sleeping with a young girl like a very young girl everything beckett says is we the church the church's uh ecclesiastical trial we're the ones who should have handled that not uh not the courts not the british courts and you didn't hand him over you just took it into your own hands and ended up killing him he's not saying the priest is innocent there can be a lot of argument made about where the Catholic Church goes from this point right, and what right. happens because they rely on their ecclesiastical trials so much and not actual law. But that's <laughs> another point. That's a whole thing. But it's interesting because he is relying on the church's rule. And then when he gets to the Pope, we're listening to the Pope and he's not. Like the Pope is also making all these political choices and stuff because of all this. And so that was what was so interesting is like, so where's what's right? Is Thomas right because he made this choice based on the law, uh, even though all the all the people above him are so uh, like they they don't look at the law as just black and white. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, in this case, you're describing this particular sequence. The Pope sends uh, it, it says you're going to go into quiet <laughs> meditation in a retreat in France. Yeah, you know, pick your city. I love how he says, pick your pick your thing. He says, I want to go there, and. You know, th those sequences that are that are weighty, that have the sort of weight of nations on the backs of these characters are punctuated by like the second in command saying lines like, wait till he tries the food. So great. You you mentioned you dropped the Saxons and the Normans. Yeah, do, yes. I mean, do we need to try to dust off our. Battle of Hastings history to get to this to to what's going on um, in in this movie. It's a whole thing that I don't fully understand, but I know there's like the in the Middle Ages this whole battle between the Normans and the Saxons, and the Normans were the Vikings. They can, Normans were the Vikings, and the Saxons were the German Germanic folks. They would have been settling in England for hundreds of years. Normans come in and fight and. It was William the Conqueror, I think, was the leader there. And it was Harold. Was Harold was the one who got shot in the eye and how he died? He was the, the Saxon King Harold who was shot in the eye and killed. And that was the, the Battle of Hastings. That was 1066, right? That's the big, that was a big turn because this takes place in the 1100s. Right. Years later, after the Normans had come and built a bunch of castles across England to to, you know, in defense of England. That brings us to today where we have uh, today in movie time where we have Beckett and King Henry, who. <laughs> so Henry is Norman and Beckett is Saxon. Right. And that's the sort of Romeo and Juliet relationship of their story. Two families who shall never be together. <laughs> exactly. Which is interesting because it's brought up often that Beckett is a Saxon, but it's very much one of those things where it's like, well, he's Saxon by blood, but he's really Norman by attitude. Like, yeah, it right. really seems like Henry is just like, he doesn't care a lick about where he's from. He's He is uh, everything that uh, represents what a good Norman is anyway. And so... 
you just get this sense that he really just does not look much at him being a Saxon. And even when he's mocking the Saxons and everything, like Thomas seems kind of right there with him. You know, he he doesn't really seem to be too troubled by where he's from. And so that's this whole angle that certainly um, is at issue here. But it certainly is an issue for a lot of the other people. And in fact, we hear quite often from, you know, some of these other people who are in the church, who are, you know, other representatives of the church, complaining about the fact that this is a Saxon who is kind of running things and really don't like that. And so it it makes for a very interesting uh, addition. As a side note, just an interesting little side note, the playwright, he found a book that uh, kind of talked about Thomas Beckett and wrote this play loosely based on the book. Only after he finished did he find out from a friend that it was all inaccurate and Beckett was actually also a Norman. And he made the decision to leave it as is because it would be too complicated to rework the project. (laughs) And, and his, from what I read, he said something like, "You who knows? Maybe down the road, someone someone will figure out that he actually was Saxon all along." And that was kind of the way he wrote it off. No. <laughs> oh no! History has been rewritten by a French playwright. Uh, Unreal. <laughs> so funny. Well, and that's an interesting. That never happens. That never happens, right? I. It's actually an interesting point because does like it's brought up a number of times in the film to the point that you'd think it would be important. But is it ultimately important to the story that we're told on screen? I think it is when we get to the end. I think that's where it becomes important because what happens is (laughs) Henry kind of it's one of these like half hearted I, I wish somebody would just kill him sorts of things <laughs> right. that he says in front of some of his barons who were like, oh, we get it. Wink, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. wink. <laughs> we'll go kill him for you. It's like <laughs> so funny the way that that happens. But anyway, so he ends up having these barons kill him and everybody pretty much knows what happened. And so the Saxons all of the the faithful Saxons there um, end up, um, like the monks and everything, they end up putting, it's not really putting them on trial, but it's kind of a religious reaction to it where they actually require Henry to undergo penance. And so we, the very, and we get the bookends of this film where at the very beginning he comes to Beckett's tomb and is talking over him. And then we kind of get the entire film. And at the, at the end, we come back to this point and he is actually getting whipped by these monks. And, and so that's, I think, where there becomes an element of importance in kind of this, this split between these two Normans and the Saxons and how the Normans may have been the conquerors and are running everything, but there still is this uh, element of these Saxon uh, religious leaders and they end up like the king himself has to be punished by these Saxons. And that's, I think something that was kind of a surprise in the context of the film that, wow, the king is actually letting himself get whipped by these people. Like I just, you, you get to that end and you're like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. And the fact that Beckett becomes, um, canonized, uh, as a saint, it's like, it's an interesting, and and I suppose that's for me that ended up being the resolution between the Normans and the Saxons as portrayed in the film. Well, I I absolutely hear that, and I I can see that point. All I'm thinking is, as I think back to the movie, really, I, would there have been enough strife between church and state to be able to excise the Norman Saxon story and make them hate each other all the same? Right. And and to me, I think there was like, I think they could have gotten away with that without without needing to lean so hard on the norm. So does, all I'm wondering is, does the story hold up? Yeah, yeah. If if you actually realize that they're both Normans, I think it does. I think so. And, and I mean, I suppose, uh, you know, in the scope of some elements that some British people would probably want to make sure that the Norman Saxon element is included, because it probably is an important part of their uh, backstory. But at the same time, I do think you're right. We probably could have told this story without necessarily even going into Normans and Saxons. And when they go to the paupers, it's just, you know, they're complaining just because they're poor and yeah, everything. Right. And at the end, you know, that he's getting whipped just because, 
you know, he committed a crime against the church. And I, mean, I, I think you're right. We probably could eliminate the Normans and Saxons from the story and it would be fine. Yeah. And speaking to the to the actual thrashing, uh, this is where it's this coda where the the pacing is a little bit funky because some there's obviously a lot happens between the death of Beckett and his thrashing and then canonization as a saint. And it does feel like all of that weight of possibly years is in a crossfade. <laughs> Uh, I suppose. I mean, he is killed in 1170. I'm not exactly sure we get a sense as to uh, how much. Uh, obviously, there had been enough time for him, like a whole tomb to be built with this. Um, what do they call it when it's the, the, the relief of him that's built into it? Like that whole statue yeah. top of the yeah. tomb? Yeah, like, that seems like a thing that takes a long time to make. I don't know. So, yeah, I've never made one. Beckett was killed, you said, uh, in 1170. Uh, 1170, And yeah. then Pope Alexander made him a saint in 1173. So that is a three-year okay, crossfade. so three years. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's a strong film. I can see why it received the accolades that it did, because it's such an interesting story about friendship, about church and state, about what's right. And, uh, you know, it, it, it it's helmed by some pretty incredible performances so um yeah I, I other elements within the film that stood out to you as far as like cinematography music costumes uh production design production design costumes i mean i just i i think the uh i, I like existing in this world for a, a little while i think they I, it actually looks good the costumes are solid i i feel like anytime once you put burton in his robes that you just he exudes the role i mean it just they're luscious luscious robes i mean it reminds me to maybe i should wear my robes to work uh every day because it really does it does a lot you have to have somebody helping you put them on that's where it becomes yeah. a trick and carry them and your silver staff um what do you know about about peter glenville uh director of this thing we haven't dropped his name yet and uh I'm wondering if you're a real glenhead <laughs> uh, or a Glenvillian. A Glenvillian. That'll be on the next year. <laughs> right. I'm trying to think of what he's done as a director. Like, what have I seen that he made uh, as a director? I can tell you, uh, I don't uh, think uh, I've uh, seen anything else that he's done as a director. Alec Guinness was in The Prisoner. He did that was his first directorial uh, project. I have not seen it, but uh, it's been on my list for a little bit. I All I've got is this one. Yeah. A very very short career as a director, only directing things from 1955 to 1967 um, on film. Also did quite a bit of uh, projects on Broadway. In fact, started with a film I love, the Browning version. Uh, his directorial debut on Broadway was the play, the Browning version. And uh, he also directed the Innocence uh, stage adaptation, so I really like projects that he has been involved with as films, but I've never seen anything of his films. I've only seen uh, the films of plays that he previously had done, which really doesn't relate <laughs> to him in the slightest. I I think what's interesting about this direction is that it it felt like, I mean, it's a two and a half hour film and it does not feel like a two and a half hour film. It is paced just right. Uh, it clips along quite evenly to me. Uh, and I never found myself, I didn't pick up my phone. There was a zero phone pickup while I was watching this movie. It's an interesting pace for this film because, yeah, it like but by the time we suddenly hit the intermission i was like oh i didn't realize that we had come quite this far into the film that we're getting the intermission so it does move very effectively over the course of it so yeah i i definitely uh feel that yeah i don't think we need an intermission at all i fast forward <laughs> it uh it what all 10 seconds of yeah, it all these 10 are seconds. these are like that the unless you get one of those films that specifically had like score written for the intermission like you never really you never have sit the through full it. intermission yeah. stay yeah. anymore yeah Anvi Coates was the editor on this i uh she certainly is somebody that we have um, brought up before because she has been involved in so many films like uh talk about an incredible editor just 
won a few years before this for Lawrence of Arabia. So, um, you know, already familiar with uh, big stories with Peter O'Toole on film. She ended up I mean, all the way up to Steven Soderbergh and out of sight. So, I mean, it's like really incredible career. She just passed away in 2018, but uh, really just it's amazing how much work she had done from the 40s all the way until recent films. But, but interestingly, like, uh, you know, we've talked about other things that she's done, like Murder on the Orient Express and stuff. But like when I watch this film, I, I think it's solidly edited. And that certainly goes to the pacing and everything that we were just talking about. But it didn't stand out as like overly creative, like out of sight type of editing. It's just I think it's just well crafted, well put together. And then I think that speaks to the whole production. Team. Yeah, for sure. Music was uh, Lawrence Rosenthal. You know, looking at his credits, they're extensive, not in a small part because a lot of his stuff, it looks like he worked as a stock composer. So a lot of his stuff has been used in all kinds of, of video games. He he did, uh, while well, he's also done some bespoke scores, it looks like, for some video game work lately or in the, the late um, 90s, early 2000s. I liked the music in this thing. It didn't stand out to me as as a score that is imminently hummable. I don't I can't remember any themes, uh, you know, right after watching it. But man, does this guy have a CV? Yeah, I've always liked Rosenthal. A lot of TV work that uh, Rosenthal has done, like TV movies, TV miniseries, like big things like that. His score from Mussolini, The Untold Story from the 80s is one that I've heard a lot because I really enjoy that score. But going back to stuff like Clash of the Titans, like he did the score for that, which is a really fun film. Definitely a composer. I think he just, as of recording, just received like a Lifetime Achievement Award at some music festival. So very much somebody who's been around a long time, done a lot of great stuff over the years. Uh, Certainly somebody um, that I've listened to a lot. Oh, Island of Dr. Moreau, 1977. There you go. That's that's a real high point. Logan's Run TV Man series. Man La Mancha. Man of La Mancha. Oh, you're right. Man of La Mancha, um, of course. Mm. Yeah. Anyhow. Yeah. Good stuff. What else you got? Anything else? I think that's it. So uh, we will be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Ian Post, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. All right, Andy, sequels and remakes.
big line of remakes of Beckett. Well, for our member pre-show chat, uh, you know, we talk about a lot of our favorite stories about British royalty. And one that I didn't bring up as much as I love the film, because I knew I was going to bring it up here. It is, of course, the 1968 uh, Best Picture nominee, The Lion in Winter, uh, which is a... It's it's kind of an unofficial sequel to this. It's very funny. Uh, Peter O'Toole, again, playing King, King Henry II. This is later in his life. In, and in, of course, that version, Catherine Hepburn plays Queen Eleanor. And uh, it's a very different relationship that they have. But his children are grown. He still hates them all. It's very <laughs> funny to watch. But I can only imagine how much fun uh, Peter O'Toole had coming back to that role, which we've talked about in our 1968 uh, Best Picture nominee series. Uh, that we did in 2018, which was also part of our big 50th anniversary celebration of films from 1968. I think this film would pair with two films in a really interesting double feature, either this and Lion in Winter, because it's a great kind of story about uh, King Henry II, or you can pair this very well with um, A Man for All Seasons as two interesting stories about a person dealing with the their own internal struggles between church and state as they're trying to uh, kind of work in partnership with the king. Also, it gives new meaning to Catherine Hepburn's line, Norman, you old poop. I'll bet she's thinking of Peter O'Toole, the Norman king. <laughs> hey! What? What? <laughs> and it was King Henry being played by Henry Fonda. This is, that is an unofficial sequel. <laughs> Gone Golden Pond exists in the Lion in Winter cinematic universe. Uh, it'd be the Beckett cinematic the universe. The Beckett, yes. so you're right. Beckett Absolutely. cinematic universe. Absolutely. Outstanding. But but to your point, like I don't think there has been, I, there have been, as far as I know, no other versions of Beckett that have been made as films. Um, but again, it's British royalty. We have all sorts of films uh, about many British royals that I suppose you could say, if you want to look at them as all sequels as we follow <laughs> cinematically <laughs> the line of, of uh, the royals, then certainly. Yeah. To that um, end, Spencer ends up becoming a, a sequel way down the road. <laughs> we do. I, we bring up uh, Hepburn as she was Eleanor of Aquitaine in, in uh, Line in Winter. And that was, <laughs> that was Pamela Brown played Eleanor in Beckett. And the I have to say the conversations between Beckett and his wife and his mother were astoundingly good. They were so good. <laughs> they just loathe each other. And uh, I, they were so good. Which is actually very funny because apparently he had a very good relationship with his mother. This is something that was definitely changed for the purposes of this play and then the film. He uh, respects his mother and he looked at her as uh, somebody who shaped him into becoming a warrior and a, a strong administrator. So it's interesting, like, some of the, the way that people... Uh, react with all of that yeah, for sure though it, it's it, you're right and i think you could say he had he likes his mother better than his wife but at one point it says to his wife i was gifted with your body which is a barren desert in which i was forced to wander <laughs> I mean, <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah wow it's very yeah right i know oh so so good uh anyhow there we go. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, awards. How to do an awards season. Uh, yeah, this is why we're here. Uh, this film ended up with 14 wins, 23 other nominations. Of course, we were talking about, for this series, BAFTA's award for best film from any source, uh, which it lost to Dr. Strangelove. Also, it lost to Dr. Strangelove for best British film. It was nominated for best British screenplay, but lost to The Pumpkin Eater. Uh, Peter O'Toole was nominated for Best British Actor, but lost to Richard Attenborough in both The Guns of Batasi and Seance on a Wet Afternoon. And then it won a bunch of Technical Achievement Awards, Best British Art Direction Color, Best British Cinematography Color, Best British Costume Color. At the Oscars, this was one where it had 12 nominations over there. Both uh, Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton were nominated for Best Actor in the Leading Role, but both, both of them lost to Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady, I really want to believe that that was a uh, the two votes canceling each other other out, which is why Rex Harrison won that one. 
I'm just such not a fan of My Fair Lady. Yeah. I don't know. How do you feel about My Fair Lady? Are you a fan of that one? I hate it. You hate it. I, I'm, it's a, I'll, I'll give it the old uh, Casablanca pass. If I gave it any thought, I probably would. I really don't think about My Fair Lady that much. Ugh, drives me nuts. But anyway, the fact that Rex Harrison uh, talk sung his way through that and then beat both of them for best, best actor is just ridiculous to me. Yeah. Interesting how little John Gilgood is in this film, but he was nominated for best actor in a supporting role. Lost to Peter Ustinov in Top Copy. Uh, this film was nominated for best art direction, set decoration, and cinematography, color, costume design, color, direction, lost all of those to My Fair Lady. It was nominated for Best Effects Special Visual Effects, but lost to Mary Poppins. Also lost Best Music Substantially Original Score to Mary Poppins. It also lost Best Picture and Best Sound to My Fair Lady. The only thing it won at the Oscars was Best Writing Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium. And what's interesting... There was some talk about how this and The Lion in Winter both ended up being nominated for Best Picture in their respective years, and both lost in what people said were essentially musical film showdowns. This year, it was Mary Poppins that was nominated for 13 nominations, My Fair Lady, 12 nominations, both beat Beckett, which was nominated for 12 nominations. In 1968, Funny Girl, uh, which had eight nominations, and Oliver had 12 nominations, they both beat out, uh, well, Oliver ended up beating out Blind and Winter, which had seven nominations. So Rough years for Royals. 60s was definitely a decade of musicals. For sure. For sure. How to do it at the box office. You know, this was a really thin for this one, uh, but there was just enough to scrape something together. It looks like Glenville had a budget of $3 million to make this, or $28.8 million in today's dollars. The movie opened here in the States March 11th, 1964, opposite the Western comedy Mail Order Bride. It then opened in the UK March 25th. I couldn't figure out why it opened in the US before the UK, when it seems to be such a British film, but it did. The movie did well for itself, though. I could only find domestic numbers. Uh, but here it earned $9.1 million or $88 million in today's dollars. That lands it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $400,000. Not bad. Four hundred grand a minute. Dare to dream. Uh, I love the movie. <laughs> I'm really glad we watched it. I had a great time with it. It was fun and zipped right along. And even if it lies to me about the history of the Normans and the Saxons in just one small part, uh, I call it a win. Yeah, it's a really interesting film. Great performances. Uh, certainly a strong one, for sure. Well, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Jack Clayton's The Pumpkin Eater. This is the moment they had hungered for. The phone is still. The children all in bed. Now they are alone. Just the two of them. It is the worst thing that could have happened. A love story completely unconventional. A love match gripped by physical attraction, torn apart by emotional violence. I want to go away with you. Come back with you. Live with you. You will. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> what are you sniggering for? I think it's funny, I suppose, because I tell the truth for once. The truth? But I'm capable of fancying somebody else. I'm a perfectly normal man, and I'm capable of fancying somebody else. The Pumpkin Eater is produced by Romulus Films and directed by Jack Clayton. Makers of Room at the Top. Written for the screen by Harold Pinter, one of England's foremost playwrights of this century. Academy winner Anne Bancroft stars as the much-married woman drifting from husband to husband, trapped by a sensuality she can neither control nor confess. Peter Finch. Her third husband, she needs him close. So close, there is no room for love. Of course, Jake is the most fabulous husband and father. He's the most 
fabulous husband. Can I get it? James Mason as a betrayed husband. Hate is almost a hobby, and blackmail almost a profession. I made her swear on the baby's head that she was telling the truth. I brought the baby in and made her swear on his head. If ever I hear his stinking voice, I'll pull it out of his throat. You tell him to keep off, well off. I was never unfaithful to anyone in my life, to anyone ever. What a bloody hypocrite you are. Did you stay the night? I wish you'd shut up. I wish you'd die. <laughs> Nothing quite like the pumpkin eater has ever been filmed before. There has never been quite such a story to tell. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and a Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. Have you ever seen it? Have you seen The Pumpkin Eater? No. I haven't either. No. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be very upsetting if if there's a Peter. <laughs> Beautiful mother of five, Joe, leaves the banality of her marriage to second husband, Giles. Giles? Giles. Giles. I never know how to pronounce that name. To wed her passionate screenwriter lover, Jake Armitage. As suspicions of husband Jake's philandering grows, Joe's sanity spirals. Mm. I don't it, think there is a Peter in the movie. I don't either. Well, Peter. There is Peter Finch. Well, yeah, the actor. He's yeah. not the character. The actor, yeah, is, is Peter Finch. Maybe that was it. Just a nod to great Peters everywhere. All right. Uh, <laughs> Letterbox, Andy, it's time for that uh, fantastic hallowed uh, session where you and I decide how to steal stars from one movie and give it to this one. What are you going to do? It's interesting. I, You know, as I was, again, going back through watching films nominated for Best Picture, and I went through uh, the 60s watching this one, I enjoyed it, but it didn't click with me quite as well. The first time I watched it, I rated three stars in a heart. I think this time on this watch, I just I found it uh, a lot more to connect with these characters and such an interesting story. I'm going to raise it up to four stars in a heart. Oh, me too. Four stars in a heart for exactly that reason. I just I connected with these two guys and their um, and, and their relationship right away and uh, uh, ended up having a really good time with this movie. A much better time with the movie than I expected when looking at the poster, which literally has Peter O'Toole bowing under the weight of the crown on his head. It's like metaphor 
Uh, this is the, the I'm looking at the poster on Letterboxd right now that it's showing, which is a very austere poster with Beckett very small over his shoulder, the little the little birdie on his shoulder. So the weight of the crown is heavy is all I'm saying. I thought this was going to be a much sadder movie than it was. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a strong one. Definitely worth checking out in the line of stories about British royalty. So uh, anyway, you can find us over at Letterboxd. I'm at Soda Creek Film. Pete is at Pete Wright. So, what did you think about Beckett? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we'll be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. I have a four star from Lacey. <laughs> That's exactly what she puts it so succinctly. Exactly what I was thinking about the whole time I'm watching this movie. All the greatest love triangles in film involve two dudes and God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is awesome. Well, there's definitely a lot that uh, that bring up the homoerotic tones that you certainly get between this. And I just went with one. It was Vivian's five-star, two bros sitting in England, five hours <laughs> apart, because they're not gay. <laughs> nope. <laughs> just two bros. <laughs> yep. We're just two bros here. Uh. Okay. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.